Hi, folks. Welcome back to Kitchen Table Politics. I'm your host, Jeremy Massengale. This is the podcast where we all sit around the kitchen table and discuss political ideas. With us today is Rimzo Martinez. He is from the Rimzo Republic podcast. Rimzo, how are you this morning? Jeremy, it's great to be here, man. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, no problem. Rimzo, tell us a little bit about your podcast. Well, my podcast is, as you mentioned earlier, the Rimzo Republic it's basically where I get to uh, rant once or twice a week with a friend of mine. <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, um, I started my podcast over a year ago. We actually just passed our one-year anniversary. And uh, the purpose of it was, you know, I, I had worked on campaigns for you know several years at that point. I had done community organizing and activism. And the one thing I hated was that, you know, the, the media people, they just – you know, it, it's really hard to get your message out there, especially when your ideas are good and your solutions are right when no one pays attention. So what I want to do is I want to create a quality professional show where I could get on people with the right message who have a clear vision of what the future looks like and give them an audience where they can actually go out and affect change. And that's how the show was born. And since then, I mean, it's just been absolutely fantastic we we moved away from just doing you know activists and candidates specifically and now we're just branching out so that way we could expand our audience and expand our message you know we've had comedians on we've had elected officials on we've had writers and comedians i mean it's just it's absolutely fantastic and you know i I really hope that my show is really just a, a forum for ideas where people can come and talk and have fun because, you know, when you talk about politics all the time, it gets dreary because, you know, you, you can't you can't do anything if you're not having fun in the process or else you'll just get burned out. So that's really the purpose of my show. Uh, that's absolutely right. This uh, constant outrage that a lot of people go through, that's that's just draining. And I don't see how people do it. You worked on political campaigns and I see liberty in your icon for your your logo for your show. Were those libertarian candidates you were working for or republican or it it was kind of a mixed bag i I had started originally with the libertarian party and at that point i had uh i had gone and i was basically like you know we we keep saying we're principles before party but i see opportunities where we can affect change outside the libertarian party as well so i've been the campaign manager for independent candidate out here in lynchburg virginia where i'm currently at and uh, my last campaign recently, I, you know, I always say this is my last one, but each campaign I always say is my last one. I end up jumping into another. But the last campaign I did was for uh, former state senator Tom Garrett, who's now Congressman Tom Garrett, and he's a Republican. And the, the reason why is, you know, when it came to um, one of the people I had to study when I was learning the art of um, community organizing was Solinsky, and he wrote the book Rules for Radicals. The thing about Solinsky was he, he wasn't necessarily a person that had just like one defined plan. He was just a person that when, when he went to war and you know, he, he wasn't like a, a soldier or anything, but everything he thought of everything as warfare. So when he was trying to affect certain change, when he was trying to get a certain thing to come, he tried to get 
as many different factors, as many different people involved. So that way, you know, he, he could go in and attack something from all sides. And I think when it comes to these ideas, such as individual liberty and free markets, I don't think anyone has a monopoly on that. Um, I don't think anyone's ever perfect. But what I do know is if I can move the needle in the direction of more freedom, I'm going to go that way. Mm-hmm. And what I constantly tell people is the person who's my 99% friend is not my 1% enemy. So, right. you know, I, I've never been pigeonholed in one area, okay. whether it was just party or whether it was an organization or whether it was just one issue. I've worked with Democrats on things such as criminal justice reform. I've I, you know, I helped try and help out a Green Party candidate out in Arizona who was trying to fight uh, the Department of Child Protective Services and stuff like that. So it's all about moving the needle in the right direction. Right. What got you interested in the the liberty side uh, of government, the the idea of personal freedom? <laughs> this is this actually has really nothing to do with that, but it has everything to do with that. Okay. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, I was, you know, I, I was one of those kids. I had giant dreams. I wanted to go to this, uh, you know, this really expensive school and where, you know, like no one got accepted except for like people who were incredibly smart. And I was taking this math class that I just wasn't prepared for yet. So I decided to drop the class mm-hmm. and my guidance counselor who knew nothing about me, but she saw my last name. She said, you know what? First, is English your first language, Remso? And I was like, well, you know, English is my only language, ma'am. <laughs> I'm from Arizona. I was born in America. Uh, both my parents have college degrees. And she's ignoring all of that. She's like, you know, um, what do you want to do after high school? And, you know, I'm a freshman. I'm like, well, you know, I want to go to school and I want to go do this. And she looks at me. She's like, you know what? I think you need to lower your standards in life. And if you do want to go to college, maybe you should do like two to three years at community college and find yourself. Wow. And I was like, what the hell? So right there, this woman put this, just this giant glass ceiling over me. She stereotyped me. She knew nothing about me, but because she was just another bureaucrat, in the public school wheel, she thought that she knew more than me. And for the next, you know, four years of high school, I did everything to prove her wrong. And I was not only the first person in my graduating class to get a college acceptance letter, but I was the one that got the most scholarships. You know, I, I was the one that succeeded. I was the one that actually got out of there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, last I checked, a lot of the people that ended up graduating top of the class, you know, a bunch of them got pregnant. A bunch of them dropped out. Uh, one of them's in jail. And I'm doing pretty good with my life. And it's great. And it's because I came to the conclusion that if I want to do something – I'm going to do it. And the reason why I'm a libertarian is because I wasn't going to wait for someone to, you know, come and save me with a red cape that said government on the back of it. I knew that I had to save myself because I was tired of being pigeonholed. I was tired of, you know, being told I couldn't succeed. You know, no one else dictates that for you. That's a decision you have to make. And, you know, life happens. But ultimately, you put in 90% of the work that you want to receive the 10%, you know, outcome from. So that's, that's where things kind of started for me. But, you know, back in the 2012 election, you know, that's when I started getting involved in politics because I'm like, you know, everyone – I'm so tired of government telling people what they can and can't do when it comes to stupid things. That That's also when it kind of started for me because that's when I was able to tie these two things together. You know, the problem isn't necessarily, you know, just me in this one school. It's me and an entire system that's trying to put people in this 
progressive plantation, I, I just wasn't having it. So around 2012, 2013, that's when I started to take more of an interest in actual policy and everything else. I think a lot of people can relate to that. Here in, in Tennessee, there's this uh, idea of the revenuers back from prohibition, mountain people not liking the government being involved in our lives. And that that's really something that sticks with us a lot today is uh, even in our, our biggest fight song, Rocky Top from the University of Tennessee, there's a line in there about two strangers climbing on Rocky Top looking for a moonshine still, but strangers never came back. So you you can interpret that however you want to, but there is this <laughs> per- pervasive idea of, you know, just leave us alone. Hey, so, people just want to be free. In their heart, they might want to be free. And, you know, there are some people out there that, you know, they, they might be your most flaming progressive, but, you know, in their heart, they want to be free. They just don't want other people to be free. Right. It's weird, but yeah. So you recently spent some time at CPAC. Can you tell us a little about, a little about that? What made you interested in going to uh, such a conservative meeting? You know, I got so much shit for going to CPAC. I kind of understand why, but the thing is, I'm a person that unless I actually go somewhere, I'm not just going to create a generalized opinion unless I, like, never have the chance and I'll study it and everything, of course. But, you know, it's like, a, it's like the France metaphor. Would you rather you know, just watch a documentary on France, or would you rather go to France? Well, everyone would rather go to France. And for me, this was my first time going to CPAC. And the reason why I wanted to go there was because, you know, I, you know, when, when it comes to libertarians, it's really weird. They have something called the liberty movement, and then you have something called the conservative movement. And for the most part, I think having worked in on, you know, on every front in terms of party and policy, the liberty movement was never necessarily as strong as a lot of people give it credit for, and it's never necessarily been as effective. I think the conservative movement has always been a lot more effective. And by the conservative movement, I mean the three-legged stool that William F. Buckley kind of sort of created back in the 50s. And it was the free market libertarians, the Hayek's, the Mises, those guys, your traditionalists, like the guys at National Review, and then your anti-communists, which were essentially the neocons. They were basically the guys that were begrudgingly your friend. They're like, well, you know, the enemy and my enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. So I, I had always seen that as more of the way that libertarians get things done. Because, you know, people forget Ron Paul was a Republican. I mean, things like that happen. You know, yeah. libertarians always got more done with the conservative movement than they did on themselves. And people are like, well, remember Rothbard's leftist years? I'm reading uh, It's Never a Dull Moment right now by uh, Murray Rothbard during his, quote, leftist years, and even he goes on to regret that stuff. So anyway, I wanted to see how it was post-election, and I got to tell you, there are a lot of things that kind of scare me. There are a lot of things that really make me happy, but it's one of those things that I'm having a really hard time explaining because for the most part, the message at CPAC was you don't have to be a conservative to be in the conservative movement. Hmm. And that means one of two things. One, that means people like me come in, but then again, it bodes the question. So who can come in? And the problem last year for my friends that went, their biggest thing was a bunch of people said, you could be a progressive and be part of the conservative movement. What? No. <laughs> yeah. It, it's absolutely ridiculous. So CPAC this year kind of went a little back because and I'm going off of what people told me from last year. Last year was, what can we do for the country? And now since the Republicans are in power, the question is, what will we do for the country? 
So it was kind of strange. There were a lot of speakers who were, you know, I, I don't remember this one girl's name, but she was basically like, yeah, you know, I, I voted for Obama twice. And this year I voted for Trump. And suddenly this woman's allowed to dictate the conservative movement. If you listen to what she says, she hasn't necessarily changed her opinion on everything. She just happened to jump on the Trump train and instantly she gets her conservative card. I was a libertarian. And I was essentially told on multiple occasions I could not be part of the Republican Party. I had to go work aggressively for a Republican in order to get accepted. But this person just happens to say, I just want Trump, 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 and that's good enough. No. One, I knew in freaking eighth grade that Obama was not going to be good for the country. And then in 2012, when I could vote, I knew that that was not the solution we need to go. This person was an adult both times, but for Obama as an adult both times, and has not necessarily had this type of conservative resurgence in her heart that you would want for someone that's going to speak at CPAC. And she's not the only one. You had a lot of people that essentially treat it like Trump pack with all the make America great again hats. And, you know, you had booths or people talking about fair trade and, you know, let's go to war and all this other stuff. But, you know, you've had, Still a libertarian presence. I'm disappointed that the Cato Institute pulled out because I thought that was childish. David Bowes, the director of the Cato Institute, said that they weren't going to go to some Trump rally. Honestly, I think that's like, you know, picking up your toys and going home because one of your other friends picked for the dodgeball team and you weren't. So I was very disappointed with Cato. But, you know, you had Students for Liberty, you had Stonegate, and you had uh, several other organizations there that, you know, They're still pushing that libertarian message. And those were the people that had crowds. Those were the people that were, you know, making other people excited. And you look at organizations like Turning Point. I used to give Turning Point USA so much crap almost a year and a half ago. And you look at where Turning Point was a year and a half ago, and you look at where Turning Point is now, and they're holding up signs that say, live free. They're holding up t shirts that say, socialism sucks. They're holding up signs that say taxation is theft. Wow. I think the libertarian message is popular. I think the idea of maximum freedom and limited government is popular. And, you know, that's great. But then you've got the alt-right. I was standing a few feet away from Richard Spencer before the paparazzi came around. And, man, he got a warm reception from more than one person. I met more than one individual that would call themselves either a uh, identitarian or a new nationalist or a neo-confederate. And it's like, you want those guys and the progressives in here? Oh, no. Oh, no. So all in all, you know, great experience. I had a lot of fun. I plan on going back next year, but it definitely shows something strange. It's like, I thought that people would have a better idea of what a conservative is after this election, or at least how to define the conservative movement. Because as a libertarian, you know, I I do believe that the only effective movement is the conservative movement, because it's been able to bring out the most substantial changes over the past 70 years. But I walked away not necessarily being able to define that still. So that was CPAC. That's not what I expected to hear. You know, it's, it's funny you talk about these uh, libertarian ideas in the conservative movement. It seems like right now the, the biggest voices in the conservative movement that I've seen do tend to be libertarian. 
You have uh, Senator Rand Paul, who's walking around trying to find this bill, which is something that's just hilarious. You have Justin Amash. You have Thomas Massey. All these guys that have very libertarian ideas are being very loud voices right now against the Republican establishment. Oh, absolutely. And you have my old boss, Tom Garrett, who just recently proposed a bill that would decriminalize marijuana at the federal level. I mean, just right there, that's a Republican, freshman congressman who's doing that. Mm -hmm. You know, liberty is popular. People want it. They might not. And, you know, here's the thing. They might not want it for others, but they want it for themselves. That's why, you know, you take a bunch of these, I call them the blue collar Trump, you know, the Trump Democrats. And they're like, yeah, you know, we, we don't want, you know, coal country go away. We don't want our jobs to go away. We want limited government because Obama's a fascist. And it's like, okay, let's talk about your Social Security. Don't talk about that. Right. Let's talk about your Medicare. Don't talk about that. Let's talk about all these other government benefits you're getting. Let's talk about WIC for your kid in West Virginia. I mean, it's just it, it's liberty for me, but never for thee. And it's it's weird right now. Mm-hmm. So I, I, things can go in a good direction. I think things are going in a better direction. I'm really impressed with Trump on a lot of things, actually. I'm actually, like, really relieved right now because in terms of, like, all these scandals going on, it's nothing compared to Obama. Obama had a scandal a day. And with Trump, if this is the worst that we're seeing, oh, my gosh, I'll take Trump in a heartbeat. Right. And the things that he's been able to get done in not even a couple of months, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not worried at this point there are some things that you know well let me rephrase that there are some things that do bother me but he hasn't given me a real reason to be upset about them yet because so far he's been doing a pretty good job so things like that you know you, you got to take it the way it is a lot of people are like oh no it's everything or nothing i don't deal on absolutes especially in politics because that's just not realistic you got to take it where you can you got to give a little where you have to and uh, so far, you know, that's that's just kind of how it is right now. So it's it's uh, it's turbulent times, but it's going in at least a stable direction because there is a clear vision. So I'm I'm pretty happy. There's definitely a clear vision from the executive side. I I don't think we do from Congress. Like as you were saying, there's so many different factions right now inside the Republican Party. The the message is kind of muddled. Yeah, and I mean. Did we actually expect Mitch McConnell to want to repeal Obamacare? No. Like 10 years ago, this guy thought the idea was good. The only problem was it was proposed by a Democrat. Mitch McConnell's not a conservative. He's a guy that was like, well, I have to be somebody. So he was in Kentucky, decided to run as a Republican. And now it's like, oh, crap. You mean we actually have to do it? Uh, Let's go to CNN and tell them that the Democrats might filibuster us. The Democrats have no power. Right. Democrats have no power. They can't do crap. And for Paul Ryan and all these others that are issuing Obamacare light, I'm sorry. They they need to remember that they won the election in a historic landslide. They won more seats in the House and the Senate than the Democrats did in 2008. And they need to remember that they took back control of the House in 2010 and 2014 they won a historic majority not seen since prior to World War II. Absolutely. The the only problem is they don't want to give away that power. They like it. They just want it their way. That's true. I I think it's important for the states to to come together and say, we're just not going to accept these things anymore. It's ridiculous that that we as a, a sovereign 
state have to act like a colony of a federal government. Yeah. Um, I, I spoke to Governor Matt Bevan at CPAC. Uh, I only had about 10 minutes with him to get as many questions as I could. But, you know, the his biggest problem is he's more than willing to say, no, I uh, our state is going to nullify that. Our state's not going to participate in this. The problem is Matt Bevan has had to make some really difficult calls and say, okay, I'm going to have to accept this federal regulation. I'm going to have to accept this this uh, order and everything else because when you look at GDP in Kentucky, when you look at development and infrastructure in Kentucky, uh, Matt Bevan inherited a mess that he's still trying to clean up, and he's done a pretty great job as governor, but there's still a lot that he needs because his state is so, so dependent on – federal grants yeah so we we need to remember that you know you you can have your most conservative governor and matt bevan i think under greg abbott out in texas is probably one of my favorite governors right now but you know even that is something that is a difficulty because you know for a lot of people you've got to remember when you're in when you're in a position of leadership you have to take care of everybody and you're taking care of everybody you have to remember not everybody's gonna like you and even the people that do are still dependent on things that neither of you might not like. So it's that tenuous relationship. It's almost like a heroin addiction. That's what federal grants do. Oh, you're absolutely absolutely right. Here in Tennessee, half of our budget does come from the federal government. Now, we send about $60 billion to Washington every year and only get about 12 of it back. So that's the real problem. I think the the 16th and 17th amendments were were terrible for for state sovereignty and have kind of put us in the predicament that we're in now. Oh, the 18th amendment was just as bad if we're going to keep going in terms of what it did to the states, because essentially what it said was ultimately the federal government is the caretaker of the states. The federal government knows more and is you know has more of an omnipresent presence than the states. And uh, that's bad because when you look at how uh, Hamilton originally viewed the different levels of government, the states were essentially supposed to be the fourth branch. And we have this problem with American civics classes teaching everyone that each branch of government is equal in terms of checks or balances. That's not the case. What Of the three branches of government primarily, the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch, which one did Hamilton – Madison envisions being the most powerful. Oh, it's legislative. Congress should The legislative, yeah. yeah. It was supposed to be that because Congress makes the laws. The executive branch enforces the laws, which, I mean, Obama barely enforced. His, uh, he, he picked and chose the laws he wanted. Everyone, Every president does that, but he was the worst at it. He was a criminal when it came to that. And then the, judi- the judicial branch was just supposed to settle small, you know, I'm saying small in relative terms, but in terms of like the big scheme of things it was just supposed to settle like disputes it wasn't supposed to draft law it was not supposed to have this role that it has now and i mean don't get me wrong i am you know i'm so happy that trump uh has nominated neil gorsuch as uh scalia's replacement i never thought in a million years he would do that but you know i'm you know i'm praying it's like man to heaven i'm perfectly fine with that but we, we've gone so far away from that. Right, absolutely. I want to switch gears just a little bit. I had a, a, a guest on last week. She runs a website, Meet 
wethepeople.org, who is it's a very bipartisan website, this art project that she put together, but she is very liberal. And, and during her time putting this project together, she got to meet a, a lot of conservative and libertarian people, and it really made a difference in her life, talking with people at a personal level, with people that disagreed with her. One of her questions she had for me was, why do conservatives, or we'll say libertarians, throw those in there as well? Why do they, why do they have a hard time speaking with liberals and having dialogue with them? What's your opinion? Because progressive policies are inherently violent, and they don't realize it. When you're dealing with somebody that's a progressive, or you're dealing with somebody that's conservative, um, you're dealing with two really distinct worldviews. One thinks that government is inherently good, and the other one thinks that government is inherently bad. The thing about progressives is that each of their ideas they think needs to be you know, fulfilled through the use of the state, and the state is a mechanism of violence and coercion. It basically means that my ideas are so good that if you disagree with me, I'm going to enforce them at gunpoint, which means I could take your property, I could take your liberty, and I could take your life. When you know, when when I when people come up to me and they're like, you know, I agree with you on criminal justice reform and immigration and uh, the drug war and stuff like that, but it's just everything else, I just don't get why you're not a liberal rep, or you're not a progressive. I don't like using the term liberal to describe the left anymore because, they, I mean, they destroyed that word. They don't even like that word. That's why I use progressive so much. But I'll look at them. I'll be like, guys, it's just because I'm not love. I'm not comfortable with the level of violence that you are. And then they freak out. You know, when, when you look at everything that government does, it has to be enforced. And you look at, you know, I like to use um, Eric Garner as an example. He was the guy that was selling loose cigarettes out in New York. And what ends up happening, he ended up getting and killed because of that. And you look at things like that every day. People are using SWAT teams for knock and raids to deliver court summons and everything else. I mean, uh, I remember a video of this guy that was pulled over for seatbelt for a seatbelt violation, and the cop thought that he had a gun, and the cop shot him. And those are just minor examples. But when it comes to everything else, I mean, what happens if you don't pay your taxes? What happens if you voluntarily say no to the voluntarily to the voluntary tax? They're going to come after you and put you in a giant rape cage. That's what progressivism does. Progressivism says that you are subordinate to government and that no matter what government says, they will use violence and force to force their will upon you. And that's what progressivism is. Progressivism is not about progress. It should be called regressivism because it's the philosophy of uh, racial superiority, you know, the Democratic Party is the party of the Klan, it's the party of eugenics, it's the party that put, you know, thousands of Japanese citizens in internment camps, it's the one that's still fought for the draft even to this day, it's the one that's saying that, you know, families are not a bedrock for a civil society, it's the one that says that Uber is a crime syndicate. It's the one that said that we're going to force you to have health care, and if you don't want it, we're going to charge you a massive fee. I mean, progressive policies, they can only exist through force and coercion. So until you break that down with a Democrat, I mean, what's the point of outreach if they still think that it's okay to enforce their will at gunpoint? And the thing about progressives, I think you've got kind of a cowardly mentality, and I've said this to my progressive friends, which is probably why I have so few now. I think there's kind of a cowardly mentality because obviously they're not as committed to their own ideals or else they'd go out and get a gun and do it. 
but hey, in their world, all the guns are gone, so you only have the state at the end. So I think that's the problem. I've worked with enough Democrats. I've worked with enough progressives, but that's ultimately what it comes down to. What's the point of outreach? Do I want someone that's that violent and they don't even know it? Is that cognitive dissonance? What is that? No. Um, There's either outreach or there is conversion, and that sounds really radical, but here's the thing. I don't want to work with someone that thinks that that's a good solution to doing things. I want to work with someone that wants more peace and prosperity and wants to promote individual liberty. So if I'm not necessarily reaching out to liberals or progressives, that's why. It's because I either don't want to waste my time or it's because unless I do it, I want them to stop being progressives. That's what it comes down to. Progressivism is Ebola for the soul. So, yeah. But if if we don't reach out to them, if if we don't have dialogue with them and they're stuck in their echo chamber, how are they ever going to change? You know, I have a friend who uh, started a podcast recently. I don't think he wants me out himself yet. But um, when I met him, he was one of the most flaming progressives I had ever met. He was a Democrat to the core. And we just didn't talk politics. We're friends. We could do so much more. Ultimately, I'm never going to use politics as a means of you know collateral damage for a friendship. Or I'm not going to use my friendship as collateral damage to enforce my politics. So when I started my show about a year ago, he just started listening to it. And, you know, I'm not usually this fiery or radical when I'm discussing this type of stuff, even though a lot of people probably disagree with me. But he just started listening to it. And the thing about my show is I try not to get into, like, these really deep, you know, Joe Walsh just scream and yell at them handy-style conversations. Mm -hmm. I, I just try and talk about things from the perspective of more peace, more tolerance, more freedom. And he just, you know, he had, he was intellectually curious. And, um, you know, I, uh, I just announced it yesterday, but this Wednesday on the show, we're having Jim Harold. He's one of the most popular podcasters on the planet. He does the paranormal podcast and the, and the campfire podcast. Mm-hmm. He's the ghost guy. He's a paranormal guy. And I'm having him on the show. We're not even talking politics. And people are like, why, why are you doing that? And it's like, well, you know, I'm going to discuss it in terms of culture and overlapping culture and how we're, we all have the same types of cultures across the globe and across states and everything else and race and all that jazz. But my thing is, if I can get someone who doesn't necessarily listen to me, but they listen to Jim Harold to come here, have hear this conversation, have fun, and then tune in next week when I'm talking about either 3D printed guns or why we need to end the Federal Reserve, Maybe they'll stay on and maybe they'll think and maybe I'll change their mind. And it took a year for my hardcore liberal friend to finally realize, wow, you know, protecting actual, true, classical, classical liberal values has become a conservative and libertarian stance. And now, because he was intellectually curious and because I had kind of a more, you know, soft bed approach to talking about policy and culture – I didn't change his mind. I take no credit for changing his mind. He changed his mind. All I did was provide the resources. Mm-hmm. And now he's literally going out and creating a classically liberal podcast. I think one of the things that first came to my mind when she asked me that question, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be hard on conservatives for just a minute. As a conservative, one thing that I see a lot is sometimes we have a need as conservatives to punish uh, you can see that in the in the pro-life movement. We are very pro-birth at times, but we're also pro-capital punishment. Uh, do you think that's true? 
Oh, absolutely. I think my problem with a lot of conservatives is because they're not comfortable with their own stances and because they're not as educated into why they believe what they do. They deal in uh, absolutes for things. You know, I, I knew this guy that he said, if you don't support President Trump, you're siding with the terrorists. So I looked at him and I was like, so you're telling me if I disagree with Trump on something, there's no difference between me and Al Qaeda. And he said, yes. And it's it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, I, I think the problem is, you know, a lot of people, and it goes for the left and the right, they're not comfortable in their own positions. And even if they were, I'm hoping that a lot more people would become libertarians in the process. But, you know, I, I, I do see that as a problem. And uh, I, I've discussed, you know, having a consistent pro-life ethic, natural birth, natural death with conservatives, and they do kind of get it. But, you know, we're, we're still dealing with a process of worldviews. And, uh, you know, that's the problem, because even when you take apart the political side from it, you still have the ecclesiastic side of it. You know, uh, I have a biblical worldview because I'm a practicing Christian. I'm going to have a completely different outlook of reality than someone that has a secular worldview or someone that has a Hindu worldview. So uh, we, we're, we're multi-layered beings, and that's the problem. And I think that conservatives understand that more than progressives. I think libertarians ultimately have the right answer because they believe that no one knows you more than you, especially when it comes to dictating your life. But, you know, if I had to pick a type of system to be under, I'd rather have, be surrounded by a whole army of conservatives versus a whole army of progressives. So, yeah, I and, you know, I, I talk way more crap about the conservatives. I, I'm, I'm a lot harder on them because I see more of a a partnership with them because of the amount of things that libertarians and conservatives have been able to do together. So when I see them do something like that and they're like, we're going to outlaw all abortion. It's like, okay, but have you eliminated abortion in the process? No, maybe instead of passing all these laws, which end up having a bunch of pork spending and things that have nothing to do with abortion. Maybe you need to go promote a pro-life ethic. Maybe you need to go talk about adoption reform. You know what? I get that you don't want gay couples to have kids. But gosh, would you rather a kid spend 18 years in government subsidized housing or with a family that loves them? Right. I mean, you, you got you got to think past the absolutes at that point. I completely agree. Uh, episode two of this podcast, I sat down with uh, a good friend of mine and we talked about adoption and foster care and and what the system is like now and how we're not engaged in that area as a country. So things like that encompass all pro-life issues, you know, feeding the hungry. Life is important, in my opinion, from conception to natural death. But we need to have adult conversations about it. Yeah, there is one good pro-choice argument that I think a lot of progressives throw at the right, and it's Republicans care about you while you're in the womb, but the moment you are out of the womb, they stop caring. I think that's a very accurate statement, and it's because the left, you know, they're the party of the poor. They're the party of the working class. Well, all their policies do is make the working class worse and the poor poor. I think conservatives and libertarians have the right answers when it comes to, you know, taking care of your community because you have a responsibility or you should have a responsibility to doing things that make sure that the government stays out of your life and the lives of others. And I think conservatives and libertarians have done a really poor job of doing that because ultimately conservatives and libertarians care about the individual. I agree with you to an extent. I, I think our messaging is terrible as conservatives and Republicans. We do care about people even after birth. You know, some of these 
pregnancy centers get a really bad rap about only wanting to stop abortion. But many of these pregnancy centers take care of the children up to their two or three years old. You know, they supply diapers, they supply formula. It's not just about stopping abortion for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at how civil society was supposed to be. You look at what John Adams and John Jay and the founders saw. It was never top down. It was always supposed to be the individual up. It was supposed to be the individual, um, your community congregations, your church, supposed to be these, uh, you know, these independent organizations. Think of like Boy Scouts or a local Mason's Lodge or something. It's supposed to be those, you know, the, those uh, congregations in a sense. And then you go to your local government. Then you go to your uh, regional representative and your state government. And then, then you go to federal. But everything was supposed to be at the individual level. And when you just talk about people in terms of just actual people, you, you create an instant connection with the person, whether they want to agree with you or not. You've already hooked yourself into them. I, I can tell you pretty straight up, if you do that, you're almost always going to win your argument. And you're not necessarily doing this to win an argument. What you want to do is you want to win someone that's ultimately going to say, hey, let me help you. And I've dealt with some people like, you know, I'm not going to say that I've won every time. There are some people that are just plain sociopaths because there is such a thing as evil in this world. And the biggest problem with progressives is they think that everyone is inherently good, but that's a lie. Everyone is inherently flawed. And there are just some flawed people that are just downright sociopaths and they're control mongers and they want to be in power. It goes back to what I said at the very beginning. It's liberty for me, but not for thee. And, uh, you know, that, that's just what it comes down to sometimes. I mean, I've done enough leftist outreach to understand that, you know, we just got to get to the point where we say, is this worth it or is it not? Because, we're, you know, there's one thing to say outreach, but, you know, a lot of liberals are going to say, oh, well, you just want to convert me. Well, yeah, because your philosophy is inherently violent. I'm pretty sure someone's, you know, hearing this and they're probably a liberal and they're like, oh, well, you're inherently violent. It's like, no, my entire political philosophy is based around non-aggression. Right. And that goes back to, well, are you educated enough in your stances to have a actual conversation about it? Probably not, because progressives don't even want progressives to be fluent in progressivism, because if they were fluent in progressivism, they would understand that progressivism is wrong and they wouldn't be progressives. Well, there's this idea, though, from from both sides okay i've got to i've got to help people but the government's doing so why bother or from the left they say well people aren't being helped so the government has to i i think it's going to be up to the the conservatives to actually stand up and say okay well, we're going to help people whether the government is or not there's plenty of things that we can do we could come together as a country just like we did with the war bond movement during World War II, is eliminating hunger in this country as important as liberating Europe was? Can we not have a hunger movement in this country that encompasses the entire country and eliminate hunger as much as possible? You're never going to get rid of all hunger because of, of mental illness or, or personal choice from some people. But we can at least treat it as a countrywide issue and eliminate it ourselves and not have the government involved at all. Yeah, well, I also think we need to, you know, everything these days, you know, people like to throw up big fancy words they don't understand. They try and talk about things they don't understand. 
I think what we need to do is we need to redefine poverty because I lived at, right next to Selma, Alabama for several years, and most of the city itself is on food stamps, and you know it's all it's over eighty seven percent. Each each household is eighty seven percent subsidized by the federal government at that point. Why is it I'm seeing kids run around in Air Jordans with phones that are nicer than mine? What, why is it I'm seeing people with nicer rims than mine and they're wearing the new LG wireless headset? Why is it I see someone buying a TV more expensive than me and I actually make a, you know, as a college student, I was making a little, you know, I was making some pretty decent money at the time. Uh, why is it I'm buying ramen noodles and they're going out to Olive Garden right now, but. You know, they, you know, what's his name has been out of a job for a while. It, it comes back to this. It comes back to the individual, you know, responsibility, freedom. It's extremely inconvenient because it places the blame and it places 100 percent of the success and 100 percent of failures on one person. And that's the individual. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to really understand what poverty is. No one talks about the people of Appalachia. Everyone's talking about Detroit. Well, you know what? Detroit did that to itself. Appalachia has been messed up by the federal government and the state governments for years. What are we going to do about the people in Appalachia? What are we going to do about the people in Flint, Michigan? You know, the water in Flint, that's freaking government water. And then they're like, well, why isn't Walmart doing anything? Walmart reacted pretty fast and sending out you know, thousands of bottles of bottled water to Flint. And Walmart is still there, but the government is still hiding things. Until we tr- un- truly understand why people are staying in poverty and how you actually deal with it it's absolutely ridiculous you know so i think we need to understand what actual poverty looks like it's like jay-z jay-z went out to some country in africa recently and he stayed with this village and he um he hung out with these two girls and basically they walked like three miles to this well carrying you know those giant clay jugs on their head they had to fill it up they had to take it back it took them an hour to boil it and they still barely had like a gallon of water. Mm-hmm. Yet they were still okay because it's all they've ever known. And Jay-Z was like, you know what? I thought I had it hard growing up. I thought I understood poverty. I know nothing after seeing this. I know nothing after seeing this. And I'm not saying that we need to send a bunch of people overseas to see what true poverty looks like. But I do think that we need to have a very honest conversation does Jack up the road, who's perfectly fine, really need to be on welfare just because he doesn't have any skills? It's like I was watching the Bernie Sanders CNN debate recently. And, um, you know, Jason Stapleton, great guy. I've had him on the show a couple of times. Jason Stapleton from the Jason Stapleton program said something when he was doing like a recap of the Bernie Sanders town hall that was hilarious. And you had this girl, I think her name was Tanya, and she is she's been working in this uh vehicle manufacturing plant for like 15 years at an assembly line and her dad worked there for 30 years as an assembly line guy and she was basically like you know i'm afraid of a mexican taking my job so bernie what are you gonna do to save my job and jason pauses the video and he's like listen guys you see tanya right there tanya is stupid because you're telling me she saw her father who worked as an assembly line guy for 30 years she's been working there for 15 years and she's afraid of a mexican taking her job maybe that means that she needs to go look for another job or invest in her human capital and i'm sorry like a lot of people are like well i just don't have the time the most you know this the show i do the remster republic that's 
that's a side project because I still have to work. I still have to go to school. I still have to run errands. I still have to do other things. I'm most effective from 10 to two. And that freaks people out. Yeah. And you know, I'm not the most successful person, but I even understand that there have been situations where it's like, wow, I will fall behind. I will lose. I will be in the back and I'm going to miss out on things unless I'm investing in myself. And you know, it comes back full circle at this point. You want to understand poverty first. What you have to do is you have to free the individual. And some people are either going to sink or swim, but you need that. It's like when people are like, "Oh, we have to make sure this this company doesn't go bankrupt." I'm sorry, bankruptcy is healthy. That's how economies grow. Some fall down, some never get up because government prevents them from doing that. Because government instantly goes into superhero mode and ends up putting a glass ceiling over everyone. I'm sorry, some people need to go bankrupt. So that somebody more successful can come in and make sure that that mistake never happens. So, yeah, we, we need to truly understand the role of the individual in all of this. Uh, Rimzo, I, I appreciate you being with us today. Uh, can you tell us where to find your podcast and any other social media you want to plug? RimzoRepublic.com is the main site. You can go there. You can click the podcast tab and you can see all the apps and networks that we're on. For Facebook, you could just do Remso, that's R-E-M-S-O-W Martinez, or you could do the little at sign and just put Remso Republic and you'll see Remso W Martinez pop up. And then on on uh, Twitter, it's just Remso 101. Awesome. Remso, I appreciate you being with us today and uh, I hope you much success in, on your podcast, man. Appreciate it, man. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. like shopping online and supporting political dialogue well kitchen table politics and amazon.com has partnered up so that you can do both at the same time with no additional cost to you here's how it works go to ktpolitics.com and click on the amazon tab then shop on amazon just like you intended amazon will give the show a small portion of the proceeds it's that simple again it doesn't cost you anything extra so you are supporting the show just by shopping as you normally would now please enjoy the rest of the show I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode of Kitchen Table Politics. Please give us a follow on Twitter at K-T-P-O-L-S, that's K-T-Poles, and check out our website, ktpolitics.com. We'll see you next time. to date with the latest news and updates by visiting remzorepublic.com